All right, we're, we're here, Revelation chapter 20, part 5. Let's begin with a prayer. We'll sing the Word of God, set to music, sit in silence, come back and get to it. Lord, we love you and thank you and pray that you'll continue to guide us through our study of Revelation. We're coming into the tail end of this study and uh, we just pray that you have opened our eyes to truths that we did not know before and that we can improve our Christian life, our Christian walk through the knowledge that we gain. Forgive me for the things I teach which are not right and, and uh, just help us to move through knowing that we aren't saved by the, our knowledge and we, you, aren't, you don't love us more because of our intellect, but you love us because of our faith, our trust in you. And so we just pray that we will move forward and, uh, as your sons and daughters now. In Jesus' name, amen. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my
Yep. Okay. We left off uh, at verse 2 and 3 before wrapping up last week. And that they say, And he, this angel, laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand... We're having all sorts of uniqueness today. Shakings and rattlings. It's like we're experiencing Armageddon in this very room. We have winds blowing. The old serpent has been cast down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Uh, and remember, when he was bound a thousand years, the preterist position is um, from the time of Jesus' baptism until the time, and he was loose then uh, three years before the destruction of Jerusalem. Cast him into a bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal upon him. And that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. All right. So I reiterate that when Jesus walked the earth, this is just something about Satan, remember? When Jesus walked the earth, he said in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world... Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. That's John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus said it when he was standing on terra firma before he went to the cross. Now is the judgment. Now the prince of this world shall be cast out. So we're reading about people saying this hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for it. The preterist position is it occurred. And Jesus seems to be saying there it started right then. And he was cast out of this world, meaning his ability to act and cause things to remain in place. Why? Because Jesus had taken over and he began to reign where Satan could not. So that phrase is very descriptive. And um, Satan was once in possession of the evil world. But the phrase occurs again in John 14.30 and it occurs again in John 16.11. So remember that in the wilderness, after Jesus was baptized, he was taken to the wilderness, and there Satan offers him a number of things. And when Satan offered him those things, Jesus didn't say, you can't offer me that. Jesus didn't say, you're not in control of that. Jesus just let him offer, and then he cited scripture to him. All of Satan's temptations began with if you, if you, if, and then Jesus was, it is written, and he gave response. But Jesus didn't argue that Satan had capacity and had ownership of the world at that time. He didn't deny his power, but here in John 12 and then 14 and then 16, Jesus proclaims victory over him. While Jesus is walking on earth, Satan has been cast out. So this is what it seems to mean here in Scripture. Not this time when he's cast out and, and, and he's, we live in this era of peace and harmony with lambs and lions. It just means his power was bound by the power of Christ and the apostles. So I see no reason to see that Satan and his role have any more place in modernity. It's, he, does, he has been done since Jesus had the victory, and that is so hard for people to believe. So that being said, I want to share something else that I, was, that I came across thinking the other day. I shared it with Mary. I think it's an important idea about Satan being gone. He is gone in terms of who he was relative to the house of Israel, as we talked about last week. Try to stay with me and just think about this. Victory means the end of a battle, the end of the war, or, or, or the end of something where there was conflict, right? And um, it's a confirmation of the end of turmoil of some, one way or another. The end being there was a win of one side over another. So we talk about Jesus having had the victory at the cross. Jesus, when he walked on the earth, said, now Satan is cast out. Now. 
And so the preterist view is that has occurred much to the chagrin of people who love to talk about Satan and how we're still engaged in a battle with him. And if that is the case, we've never entered into the rest that Christ gives us because we're, we're still engaged in warfare with him. So anytime we are at war or go to war or engage in warfare, we enter into unrest. And I suggest that since Jesus had the victory, listen, since he had the victory, all wars are over except one. Let me repeat that. Since Jesus had the victory, all wars are over except one. Since Jesus had the victory over all things, wars are done. To believe Satan is still in power, is still winning souls to himself for hell forever, uh, is to continue to believe that there's warfare, to continue to be at unrest, to lose the comfort that we have that Jesus won for us, and we step outside the victory of Christ, to even imagine that he's still engaged with us, and yet that's preached over the pulpit. You have to go to war with this world. You have to go to war with that. You have to, and I don't think that is, is proper when we look at what Jesus did past, present, future for all. So to accept Satan, that he is gone, is to see Jesus as having had victory over all things, and all things, with Satan gone, no more warfare against him. Listen, no more warfare against the world. We don't have warfare against this cause or that cause. Christians don't have warfare against someone who maligns their character. We turn the other cheeks. Christians don't have warfare against somebody who is reprehensible to our flesh. Christ has had the victory. So when you understand that the war is over and Christ has had the victory, we can enter into his rest and therefore nothing can touch us relative to being upset, being uh, uh, not upset with uh, you know, things that cause pain, but upset with uh, another person, with another person failing us, insulting us, living a way that we don't like, being a certain way. When the warfare has done, we're done with war. And we can then live in love. To suggest that Satan is still there, our love is going to certainly be affected in a number of different ways. So we are dead to warfare except in one case, according to Scripture. And uh, no more enemies. We don't have any foes. We have nobody we need to fear at all. Not circumstances in the world, not not things that can happen to us. We don't fear it, them, they. It's done. And in that, we are truly free. So when you can experience a world in Christ where he has truly had the victory over all foes, you can walk in peace and trust in faith in him and leave anything that's disconcerting in his hands. Just kind of take that middle picture. This person just cut me off on the freeway and is attacking me verbally. Just take that and give it to the Lord. He's had that victory. That person's in charge of the king. The king's in charge of that person. Not that person. The king's in charge of that person. So you're at peace. That is what I think the good news is for those who continue to live upon this earth. So uh, it's not possible if Satan is still active. It can't be possible. It's not possible if sin is still active. And what I mean by that is, I'm not talking about sins of the flesh. I'm talking about the sin is done away with. If that's done away with, we don't have run the uh, uh, risk of accusing people of sin if the sin's been paid for. If we believe it's been paid for, for the world by Christ, you see. The one exception, though, that Scripture brings out is we do go to war... Daily, we go to war not with carnal tools, Paul says. We go to war with spiritual tools, and we go to war in the war between flesh and spirit. And so that is a daily battle that we are fighting. It's an internal battle. It's what we are at war with internally as our flesh is learning to accept the fact that he has had the victory. 
And so our flesh doesn't want to believe that. Our flesh wants to pick things back up and engage in warfare that we rightfully shouldn't. Uh, and we kind of put ourselves back in the camp of Satan being around and us fighting. But that is what we're at war with. Our flesh's will versus the will of him. Scripture talks about that happening in two ways. I mean, us living in two ways. If I can remember, sucosis, uh, to live in uh, sucosis or to live in pneumatikos. Sucositas, sucositas, and pneumatikos. To live in sucositas would be what Scripture calls the natural man or woman. Sucositas is when you are living by your flesh. And Scripture says the natural man or woman cannot perceive the things of God. They're foreign to them. So if you're going to live by your psyche, your suke, your mind, will, and emotion, that is, that is what we're trying to overcome. So we die daily to that, and we live by the pneumatikos, which is the pneuma, and by the spirit, we can discern all things. So that war doesn't end until we're out of our flesh. That's the only war we engage in, and as we have victory over our flesh, we learn to live in Christ's victory over all things. I hope that makes sense because we've been talking about Satan being bound and Satan being cast out. And I think that makes sense relative to what Jesus has actually done. So that said, let's continue forward with our verse by verse four, chapter 20. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Christ and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received the mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So that is a mouthful, and I have to admit, Reading verse 4, you automatically, if you have grown up or learned anything about Christianity, it's really tough to think of this as having happened when you read the content of verse 4. And you think of it naturally as something in the future because that's how the futurists and dispensationalists always teach it. That the, John sees thrones, them that sit upon it, judgment was given unto them, the souls of those who had not worshipped the beast, had not worshipped his image, they haven't received the mark in their foreheads. That seems to us like we're talking about a group out in the future because that's how we were trained. Uh, and, and so in my notes here, I put, these things are very hard to explain. I'm at a loss on exactly how to understand them. At this point, I'm going to go to work and study. So that's when in my studies I stopped and I went and I searched out and tried to find out all the ways to look at verse 4. And then in my notes I wrote, okay, I'm back. So understand that when I came to verse 4 in preparing this, I didn't, that was tough to understand in a preterist view. When did this happen? What, how did it happen before 70 AD? And, and what are we talking about? And I have once again been shown how little I understand in, when it comes to the fulfillment view and doing the study, I was able to discover a number of things. And I was also able to discover how they relate to the other views. So, of course, there's a number of misconceptions about Revelation. And they've been ingrained through centuries of surf surface reading of the text. We just read it. Oh, this is going to happen. And, and then, you know, you just read it from the surface. And I'm guilty of that. The study of the millennium has been that. It is so overwhelming how much study and talk there has been about what millennia means. And so it has been greatly misunderstood and misread. But notice in these verses that at verse 4, the text doesn't say, and they reigned with a thousand years is the reign of Christ, or the thousand years is a reign of Christ. That is how I read it in my mind. And so I, I imagined the millennium being Christ reigning over a thousand-year period because that's how I'd been inculcated to read it throughout my years at Calvary Chapel. 
So I started to reread it, and my eyes began to open, and it says, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Not a thousand years is the reign of Christ, but John describes them as they lived and reigned with Christ millennia. That's all it is, which, as you know, could mean any period of time in Scripture. So there are a number of interpretations uh, regarding this, and we're going to touch on it as we go on. Let me point out something else about this passage that is interesting. It says that those who, let me read it so that we can be uh, on target with Scripture. It says, uh, and I saw thrones, they sat upon them, judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received the mark in their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned uh, with Christ a thousand years. So we have beheadings going on, and we have those who John says, I saw those who were beheaded, and they are the ones who refuse the mark in their hand, in their forehead, and for the cause of Christ, they lost their heads. Um, how do you interpret that? Now, I have a dear friend. Um, I met with him two weeks ago. He came. He was visiting. He was traveling through. He's a very influential person in the world. And uh, we sat and talked. And he and his other pastor friends, he was once a pastor, he says they interpret the beheading of people who have lost their minds. He literally means who have lost their view, mind, will, and emotion of things and enter into the kingdom of God without their brains. And he's written a whole book on it. In fact, he gave me the manuscript copy. I was going to bring it with you to show you. It's called Lose Your Mind and Save Your Soul. That is how they spiritually interpret this passage. I don't agree with them at all. I see it as an actual thing that John is saying. I saw those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Christ, who had refused the mark of the beast and, and Nero and all the other stuff. So a, a woman named Regina Janes, she wrote a book called Losing Our Heads. And the byline is beheadings in literature and culture. And she pretty much shows how prevalent the practice of uh, decapitations were going all, about, all the way back through biblical history with David cutting off uh, Goliath's head, John the Baptist being beheaded, and just talks about that practice of it was really an important symbolic practice to show a victory, to say we can take the heads of, of other uh, cultures. We can cut off the thing that causes them to thrive. And so it was really, really important, especially in these days of persecution among the church. She also proves that beheadings have, over the course of worldwide history, gone slowed down greatly. Perhaps the French being the last ones to really use the guillotine. So, these martyrs that John talks about had been beheaded, so they were dead. You have to understand that. So I reject the idea that this is a spiritual beheading where we need to lose our minds and fall into the nirvana of Christ and... Uh, etc. I think this is talking about an actual literal people. The righteous dead, as we would describe them then, have passed from mortality, from mortal life, into immortal life, and they were not living on earth anymore. This is what John is seeing. They are in a different place. Where are they? Where did they go? They went to be with Christ. Where was Christ when John was receiving this revelation? He was in heaven with his Father. This is the location, and so we're talking about a group of people in his day who suffered the loss of their life through beheading because they refused Nero's mark, they refused it in their hands or their, uh, their head, and they suffered persecution. And we talked about that contextually, that these were hundreds of thousands of people that were, when Satan was loosed for the three and a half years from 67 to uh, nearly 70, that this is when Satan came down and he knew his time was short, Revelation 12 and 14 says, and he wreaked havoc through the Roman army upon Christians. And this is when Nero was lighting them on fire and beheading them. So John says, and I saw those who had gone through that. That's what I believe he's talking about. And they would reign with him from heaven 
for that period of time known as millennium or millennia. Uh, thousand, of course, in verse 4 is not literal. We've talked about that. But you can justify that through a word study, a thousand in the Old Testament. I challenge you, those of you who are literalists and believe a thousand years is a thousand years, to go back and do a word study in the Old Testament on thousand among the Jews. Because this book is primarily written in a, in a Hebrew tongue to a Hebrew audience. Thousand is a thousand in the Old Testament when you're talking about money and you're talking about uh, people. You're talking sometimes about other items, but not always. But when it comes to religious poetry or prophecy, poetry and prophecy, thousand was our kajillion. It meant the whole amount of time. So when we're talking about prophecy, speaking of a thousand years, we are not talking about literal years. We're talking about a period of time. It can be all time. It can be some time, but it is a period of time, and it could be 70 years, 40 years, 2,000 years. Uh, scholars who are amillennialists that are waiting for uh, Satan to be let go, that's amillennialists today, they understand clearly that thousand doesn't mean a thousand. So we're returning to that subject. They understand it could mean 2,000. It can mean 5,000. It means a period of time. Here, the full preterists mean, think it means one generation or 40 years of time. From the time Jesus was um, baptized to the time that it all was wrapping up before Satan was released. So here I would suggest that what the martyrs are doing is they're reigning with Christ for a time that God would determine as full or complete. I'm going to repeat that. When it says they reigned with him a millennia, they are reigning with Christ for a time that God would determine as full or complete. All right. So we might say that uh, it's forever, or we might say it's a term, and I suggest that it's the latter. It was a term of time. All right, now listen, I would suggest that this was a, a different thousand years than what is read in verse 2 and 3. Now you start to get a little dicey because we're talking about a period of time in, in verses 2 and 3. We're talking about another period of time in verse 4. And I would suggest that it's a different period of time than the thousand years of verse 4 that are in 2 and 3 because the dragon was loosed in verse 7 while the saints' martyrs were still reigning with Christ in heaven. So we have two different periods of time being talked about, and so therefore the millennia, the period of time, were different in verse 2 and 3 and then in verse 4. That gets very complicated, and so therefore it's usually missed by people and read over. Also note that the rest of the dead at that time, there were other dead, not those who had just been beheaded and were with Christ and reigning, but there were other dead that were still in what we'll call Hades' paradise or uh, Hades' Tartarsus or, or prison. We have a Hades' paradise and we have a Hades' prison. And John says they were still there. They were still there. Only those who had been martyred for the case of Christ were with him for this period of time that God determined to be the full amount of time. <coughs> These had been waiting since the days of Abel, and they had died in that time, and they were waiting for the destruction of Jerusalem and the old Mosaic sacrificial uh, temple rites to come to an end, which would introduce the great white throne judgment, which would release all of them from Hades Tartarsus or Hades Paradise. There would be a great white throne judgment of all of those from that time going back to Abel, and boom, we will have the end of that age completed, done. And that is what I suggest we are still studying. We're still reading about this. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, we pointed out a parable that Jesus said, which perfectly describes this when he walked the earth, and it's in Matthew 22, and we call it the parable of the wedding feast. And it's, uh, his is a short but really precise description 
of the sequence of events that we are reading through here in Revelation 20. First, in his um, parable, there was a call to the wedding, the gospel call to Christ. And I'll just run through it quickly. Then the messengers that are calling to people to come are killed. They're called, they're killed. These are Christ and his apostles who are inviting everybody to come to the wedding. They're put to death. Then the king, God, destroys the city, which is Jerusalem. This is the parable he tells. The wedding and the wedding feast take place immediately thereafter. Okay? The wedding and the wedding feast take place immediately thereafter. And then do you remember what happens at the wedding? Right before the wedding and the wedding feast? Judgment occurs during the wedding feast. And those clothed in proper wedding garments, those clothed with the righteousness of Christ, were reclining and at rest, according to what Jesus says. And those who are not clothed properly in their wedding garments, not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, were bound and cast to outer darkness. So this is all telling us what is happening during this interesting period that's uh, uh, going on here in chapter 20. Remember, Jesus told this parable to his disciples back then to describe to them what was coming and in a story that they would understand as revealing what was happening to them some point in time. So much of this is repeated in Revelation 20, and the judgment that occurred after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD was when the separation occurred of the rest of the dead that had waited in Hades for that period of time or the fullness of that time to be allotted. They were waiting for that thousand-year period, that millennia period, that fullness of time to end, and then because they knew then they're going to get out, the big judgment's going to occur, the wedding feast will happen, and then people will be described as either being sheep or goats. Those who are in Hades' paradise, who had been determined faithful, uh, are separated to the right, and those in Hades' Tartarus, that means the prison part of Hades, we who had already been determined unworthy and sent to the left, which is described in Matthew 25, uh, would go to the place uh, made not for them, but for Satan and his angels, the lake of fire. So the sheep were taken home to heaven with Christ. Well, they will continue to reign with him, however long that would be. And the goats were cast into the lake of fire, which is what we're going to read in the last verse of chapter 20, which is going to wrap it all up. That will be the thing that occurs, and which is also the place uh, where the devil, the beast, and the false prophet have already been thrown according to our chronology. So I'm personally convinced that reading this and talking about that day and that age, that this lake of fire, which we read about in Matthew 25, has, and has Jesus say this about it. Unto them on the left hand, these, these are those who are in Hades, Tartarsus. They come before the great white throne judgment. They aren't clothed in the proper wedding garment. They, he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into fire that is everlasting. The King James reads everlasting fire. You can read it fire that is everlasting, which would be God's fire. Listen to this. That was prepared for the devil and his angels. Because those who are in Tartarsus, the prison part of Hades, come out, are judged at the wedding feast, they're seen as not being clothed in Christ's righteousness, and are cast into the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels, including the beast and the false prophet who are already in there at the time of this judgment. They're thrown into a place that was not made for man, was not made for human souls, that, is, that was made for the devil and his angels. Why are they cast in there? Because they aren't clothed in the, in the righteousness of Christ. They are going to be consumed of their evilness in the fire of God. I believe that that was temporary because the place wasn't created for them. They will be purged there, which is a Catholic view in some sense, and then they would come out. I don't think this has anything to do with us today. I think that is what we are describing as happening back then to everybody under the Old Covenant in the wrapping up of the Old Covenant that the book describes. In any case, Hades has been a prison 
And scripture says it has gates. And scripture says it's a dark place. It's not the fiery place. And scripture says that Christ held the keys to those gates of Hades. And um, as we're informed by Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. So, of course, no one could ascend to the Father before any of this happened, before Christ atoned for sin. Everybody had to go to this covered place. And they were either a separated place. They were either in Hades Paradise or Hades Tartarus prison. Okay? And so when Christ went to prison after his death on the cross, which we read about in 1 Peter 3.19, his purpose seems to be to announce to those who were disobedient during the days of Noah, it says, that he had overcome. So in Hades, they were looking for the time for the millennium to come and pass when Hades would give up her dead. They would all be, stand before the great white throne. They would be judged. The sheep would be on the right hand. The goats would be on the left. And those who were found not having the wedding garment would be tossed into the lake of fire, created for Satan and his angels. It doesn't tell us anymore. It's conjecture on my part, but my belief is that they were purged and came out smaller. <laughs> okay, so uh, ever since the specific judgment we're reading about on the nation of Israel, under that covenant, for those people at that time, which Christ told those in the first century he was bringing back with him when he arrived, along with reward, that nation, that age, that dispensation has been collectively rewarded and judged. Period. Done. Over. Final. Hence the word full uh, completion. Preterist in the Latin. Done. Completed. Full completion. And everyone since that time who die in the Lord... Just make sure you understand this part. Go home to heaven. They go absent in the body, present with the Lord. Now you have to understand that was not the case before Christ. They all went to Hades, prison or Hades, Tartarsus or paradise. But today because of Christ, all who are his go to the Lord Go to heaven. Revelations 14, 13 says, Happy are the dead who are in the Lord. Excuse me. Happy are the dead who in the Lord are dying from this time. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. That is the promise of anyone who dies in the Lord today. Absent from the physical body, Present with the Lord. There's all the rest of this judgment and, and punishment and assessment and lake of fire and hell. It has been completed in the first century according to the full preterist view. Now we are in that time, everlasting time, where it is all happening immediately. So for 1982 years, let's say, it seems that everyone who has passed immediately is raised, judged individually, awarded with a resurrected body, which is fitted and suited to its capacity in heaven, according to the will of God and his good pleasure, they are given that eternal body and they pass from this mortal to the next. And that is the victory in Christ. That is the total victory of Christ. Those counted worthy to receive the resurrection of life, remember Jesus talked about two types of resurrection, uh, tells me from other parts of Scripture, they will abide in the new Jerusalem. They will abide within the heavenly city walls of the city, the new Jerusalem in heaven. And those, um, uh, okay, and this imagery is applicable to the early Christian church and I believe that it's applicable to us today as we read about the fulfillment of all these other material things. I want to read what Paul says because now we're entering into the resurrection. And we're going to spend some time talking about resurrection. Because this is what John says. This is the first resurrection. 
Okay? So I want to preface it by reading, if you want to read with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to start at verse 42. That's doing a little bit of an injustice. If you start at verse 30, 28, 30, and you read, I challenge you. I Here's your homework. Go home, open your Bible, and read 1 Corinthians 15, past the parenthetical reference of, of verses 22, 23, and, and just start reading. Slowly, hear what Paul says about the resurrection. I'm going to start at verse 42. You listen to what he says about resurrection. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. So sown means planted. It's planted in corruption. What kind of corruption? This is called corruption. It's tattooed and scarred, and it does not abide in heaven. This is corruption. My resurrection is sown, planted in corruption. Okay? It is raised, however, in incorruption. Now you could say, okay, that's a, that's a physical body with flesh and bones that are not corruptible. Okay, you can believe that so far. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. So right now we know that it's going to be glorious. This resurrection that we're given by God because of our faith in Christ. It is sown in weakness. That means it decays. It means it dies. It means it's subject to disease. It means all of that stuff. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in dunamis. It is raised in power. So with this heavenly body that you inhabit the new Jerusalem in, you have power given to you, bestowed upon you by Christ and your faith in him. That, that is something miraculous. Listen, it is sown, ready, a natural body. That's what this is. This is a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So when people teach a resurrection that's physical, and they say that our fleshly bodies are going to rise back up, that they miss what Paul is teaching here clearly. He goes on, it has raised a spiritual body. That's a body we don't see around here. You can't see spirit. Spirit's invisible. How do you have a spiritual body? It's, an in, it's a body that inhabits heaven, that realm. Okay, so it's sown in a natural body, but it is raised in a spiritual body. And listen to what he says. There's a natural body. We get that. And there's a spiritual body. That one we don't get. But that's what the resurrection is. So when anyone says, no, 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 you're going to come out of the tomb like Jesus did. You're going to be raised from the ground like it says we will. And, it's, and all of that, that is, you're going to be raised with a spiritual body. A spiritual Right? Spiritual. So it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made, what? What was the last one made? This is why I don't believe Jesus carries his corporal body around in heaven with him anymore. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. He was made a quickening spirit. That's what he is now. I don't believe he carries the, the corporal. Why would he need it there? He condescended to take upon a body of corruption. He didn't go back up with it to bear it around with him. The spiritual body is the resurrection that we are waiting for. And then he says, How be it that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. We're born from our parents with natural bodies that are corrupt. That which is first is not spiritual, but natural. We don't even have a spiritual body in us, which is what that's saying. We have a natural body, and afterwards, that which is spiritual. So, in our corporal corrupt bodies, we are sowing our future bodies by the faith we exhibit here in our flesh. And it's weak, and it's subject, and we die, and then we then get... It is raised afterward, which is a spiritual body. The first man, Adam, is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Heaven is not full of tangible, physical bodies. It's full of glorified, powerful, spiritual, 
heavenly bodies, okay? As is the earthly, earthy, such are they that are earthy, okay? And as is the heavenly, which we know is not carnal, such are they that are also heavenly. So in our corrupt bodies of flesh, we are sowing a body that is heavenly. And it's not going to come out until this one passes. And when it passes, what goes is this body that God gives us that is a heavenly realm edifice. As we have borne the image of the earthly. Okay, this is where another one where I disagree with coming out of the graves. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now people can say, well, the image of the heavenly is just like what we look like now, but we're glowing and we're white and we have wings and whatever they want to say. But I would suggest Paul is talking about day and night here. Completely different things. All right. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so people say, well, we're not flesh and blood. We're flesh and something else. Our blood's gone from our dead body. No, flesh alone can't. Nothing like that can inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Meaning our physical bodies, which are corrupt, don't inherit an incorruptible uh, a place on high. He is clearing it all up so perfectly in my estimation. Behold, I show you a mystery. Verse 51. We shall not all sleep. Now, he is talking to them at Corinth and he says, we. Why is he saying we? He's including in his discussion, possibly him, possibly others, but someone who is there who will not die. That's what he means by sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So we have no connection to the corruption of the body or the mortality of the body. Again, you could say, well, I still see it as a physical resurrection. If you, I just pray you let the spirit guide as you're listening to these words. And you tell me, especially if you read the other verses before it, is he really describing a physical resurrection? For, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruptible, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So at the moment when our mortal bodies take on the immortal body, he says it will come to pass as it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. I don't believe that we are waiting still for victory to occur. I believe the victory has happened. So therefore, people who have died post-end of that whole age have had the victory in Christ immediately. O oh, death, Paul says, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? Intimating right there that you are going to have that victory immediately. There's not going to be a waiting for death to be swallowed up in it. It, it occurs. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that ends that chapter. He goes on and he explains in Thessalon uh, to uh, the believers at Thessalonica that those who have already passed would participate in Jesus' return. He tells them there, believers at Thessalonica. They were worried that they weren't, if they died, they weren't going to be able to participate in his coming that the apostles were preaching was happening. And they were, they were like, what's going to happen to us if we die before him? We want to be here. When it occurs, they were so urgent that it was happening soon, as the apostles told them. And so if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and at verse 13, Paul says, I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, which are dead, that you sorrow not, 
even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also, also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So Paul says, listen, you, you may die before now, but don't fret. God is going to bring you with him when he makes his imminent return. This is his promise to them at Thessalonica. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive, again notice we, to the believers at Thessalonica, we, he's reading it, writing it to them, they're reading it. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not, the, excuse me, unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep from coming to, shall not prevent them which have died from coming to. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, Comfort one another with these words, believers at Thessalonica, who are waiting for the imminent return of Christ to come. Comfort each other with what I'm telling you. Because the new Jerusalem is in heaven, and with its own temple, those temple dimensions are described in Revelation, they're described in the Old Testament. It has its own Holy of Holies. Uh, and since Judgment Day fell corporately on the nation of Israel, already has, and because all things that have been shaken have been shaken so that the only thing that remains cannot be shaken anymore because God writes his laws upon our minds and upon our hearts today because sin has been paid for once and for all by Jesus because Satan has been cast into the lake of fire with the false prophet and the beast. Jesus does not need to come down to earth to judge the world's inhabitants anymore. Because all of that was predicated on that age of the old covenant uh, being in place and being fulfilled and passing away. He did that with his own, his own brethren, uh, his own nation, and judgment uh, was immediate and, uh, and, and so was reward. So, we have to note that while Revelation 20 verse 4 does speak of reigning, it never says anything about the reigning occurring on earth. Futurists believe that verse 4 is talking about actually reigning on thrones here on earth. They impute on earth to that verse, but it doesn't say that anywhere. It's a misconception, and there are many more in the scriptures that have to be examined for the prophecy to be understood. The New Testament is written, content telling those in those last days, I know I keep saying this, that the old Mosaic sacrificial covenant was going away, as Peter says, it's going, it waxes old, and it's almost gone. All right. The information um, that told us this, I know this is reiteration to you guys, was when after the intertestamentary period, we have the old covenant well established, Genesis through Malachi, and then we have the intertestamentary period of 400 years of silence. And then Malachi ends with a promise of one coming in the spirit of Elijah. Luke tells us that is John the Baptist. And how do the Gospels open up? With this dude, John the Baptist, coming out in the wilderness. And what's his message? The axe is laid at the root of the tree. That is a message that's saying, this mother is going down. I am here to prepare the way for the Messiah to bring it all about. The axe is at the root of the tree. Prepare yourselves for the kingdom of God. His was a prophetic, apocalyptic ministry of warning those people of what was about to happen with the advent of the true Messiah coming down the path. Only the generation then could have a second appearing of him. Stay with me. We're going to wrap it up. Only they could have a second appearing of him. Let me prove it. Hebrews 9.28. It says, So Christ was once offered 
to bear the sins of the many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Unto them that look for him he shall appear a second time. Who did he appear to the first time? The audience that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Who can he appear to the second time? Only the audience who he appeared a first time to. So when we read it, he can't appear a second time to us. He hasn't appeared a first time to us. The writer of Hebrews is telling him, this is to you, and you are going to see him appear a second time. Boom. It narrows the audience right down to them. Most of all we have read in Revelation is traceable to um, Old Testament, and the Old Testament is source code for the book of Revelation, but all of the New Testament as well. So I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. And then what else? Which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received the mark of the foreheader in their hands. If you were with us when we studied the description of the beast and his image and the number of the Antichrist, which we covered ad nauseum, I am more than convinced that we have adequately proven that this is all associated with Rome, the emperors, the cult of Nero, and Nero himself. Forget about it. The secular history is too dead on. And so as we enter into chapter 20, and it describes those who have resisted Nero and his mark and all that, it makes sense we are not talking about a futuristic view. So again, verse 4 narrows with rational reasonable reliability, the identity of the beast, and since the rejection of worshiping that beast is included in them being uh, as reigning with Christ, we know that is applicable to them. And the rest of the passage, which we have covered, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, and verse 5, which is going to launch us into next week. But the rest of the dead, who's the rest of the dead? Well, he's talked about those who were beheaded for not taking Nero's mark and the mark of the beast and the witness of Christ. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years millennium were finished. This is the first resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is fraught with great um, difficulty almost as much difficulty as the millennium. In fact, we've pointed this out before, but you ask somebody to explain the order and meaning of the resurrection besides just saying, well, we're just going to rise out of the grave. Aside from that thing that we just repeat, you ask somebody to explain the resurrection, and there are very few Christians who can do it, and the ones who can do it all pretty much argue with themselves in terms of order, etc. So that is where we're going to leave off the resurrection of the dead. Um, we had a good follower. You guys might remember a man who used to come here, and he, he used to just pour um, gratitude upon campus for our approach to Scripture. He had been to every church under the sun, and they're all doing this, they're all doing that. I just love campus, love it, blah, 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 on and on and on. Came faithfully for a long time. And when we came to the resurrection of the dead... And we started talking about it. That was it. He was with us the whole way. But the resurrection of the dead, because he wanted to believe for some reason that his body was going to come out of the place where it was laid in the future. And he could not accept the idea of the spiritual resurrection that we discovered from 1 Corinthians 15. So that's something for you to start to look at now. Because we can't finish 20 until we've covered the resurrection. And we're going to cover what the first resurrection is and what it means to the amillennialist, postmillennialist, uh, premillennialist, pre-trib, and of course the full preterist view. And that is going, I think it's going to be really insightful. After that, we will get finished the rest of 20. And then 21 and 22 are all post everything happening. So they're going to be a little bit quicker of a run through and we will wrap up our study of the book of Revelation. Questions, comments, insights. Vanna, thank you so much. David. This is David. Awesome. Uh, when 
uh, Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians uh, where he says uh, there will be some of us uh, who don't sleep. Yeah. I, I may be wrong on this, but I think sleeping is going to the grave. Yeah. It doesn't mean that his body's not going to collapse. His, by the time he hits the ground, he will be with God. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, that's how I see I that. I do too. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, because they use that uh, phrase, sleep, there are those who believe in that thing called soul sleep. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you're clarifying that. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, the other thing is that I think is interesting about this uh is it verse 4, is when we go back to Matthew 27, where it talks about the temple veil being rent. Yeah. Um, uh, so 51 through 53, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection. So it's interesting that we're right at the cross. He jumps to after the resurrection and then comes back. Goes back, yeah. Right. Um, it's not chronological like people read. And went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Uh, you may have covered that. We haven't covered it, but we are going to now because that's a big one. Because it looks like they're coming up out of the graves like Jesus did, and that's what the resurrection is. So that oh, will be okay. included next okay, week. Okay, okay. I'm glad you're on it. Yeah, that's good. What else, folks? Hi, Sean. Hi, Patricio. Okay. Um, is this loud enough? Good. Um, what do you make out when it says in Peter, and I can't find it, but you probably know, um, when he shall appear, we should be like him. Do you know that scripture? Yeah. Uh, what do you think? How do you interpret that? And what do you think? I interpret exactly what it says. That when he would appear, that they would discover who they really were and they would be like him. That's not talking about the body. No, I don't think it's talking about the body. Oh. Yeah, I think. That changes my whole look. That yeah. gives me something to think about. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Of course, people would disagree. But next week, I'm going to give you some fodder for that idea that it's not physical. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And I like your teaching about 1 Corinthians 15. That it changes my whole view. Doesn't it? It, it sets me free. It sets you free. I love it sets me free, baby. 15. Jonathan, the bearded one. Hello, Sean. This is Jonathan. Hello. Um, it's good to see you guys again. Good to see you. Where have you been? Oh, just around. All right. Um, I uh, just wanted to add to what Patrick was saying. I do think that when we see Christ, he is pure light. Yeah, pure and we will be basically spiritual bodies yeah. dressed in gleaming, glorious, beautiful light that almost comforts, uh, you know, just like the sunlight gives yeah. us so much life on, on this planet Earth, uh, just on a much greater scale that uh, words just won't do justice. Amen. Agree with that one, brother. Anything else? Vanna, thank you. You can go back with Pat now. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for the word. We're grateful for the insights that we get from Scripture and the things we're pulling out and that Dave and Patrick are talking about with 1 Corinthians and Matthew. Help us to put this together in the right way and to understand you because to know you is life eternal. And that's why we get together to study this hard stuff because we know you better. We understand what you're doing a little bit better each time. And we are... Uh, not forced, but we're invited to kind of reflect upon what we see and what we believe and where we are in our walk with you. We pray for those on our list. For Jarvis, we pray for Diana. We pray for Taylor and Lori. We pray for Kathy. We pray for those who are undergoing uh, different trials in their lives with pain and suffering and disease and sickness and, and uh, death. Uh, Jarvis is getting ready to exit this world, last stages of cancer. Bless him. Bless Diana and her uh, ailments, and bless uh, Carla with hers. Help Mary. She's undergoing the knife this week, and that, that hip replacement, that it will go well, no infection and quick recovery, and that we can look to you in all things, regardless of what happens, and, and be people of faith. And, and uh, we also pray for anybody whose names I haven't mentioned who are in need, Lord, which is most of us. 
you'll help us and you'll make yourself known and we'll walk in faith and look to that day when we do take our last mortal breath and the corruption turns to incorruption and the weakness turns to power and the darkness turns to light and it's eternal and eye hasn't seen the glories that await them that love you. So help us to love you more, Lord, and to walk with you in that faith that you want from us while we're here on earth. Let us be patient with people uh, all around and um, use us this week to do your bidding, whatever it might be, in our own respective lives. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.